Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, and Koinos Hermes. Today, we will think through together something like the feedback loop of earth and soul. That's not necessarily the best word for it, but it's not a bad way to talk about it because the, the term feedback loop has a certain presence in our sciences. What we want to think about is that we arise embedded in mind, with mind in every direction we look. Human beings in the dominant culture seem to miss the mindedness all around them. The modern human, we could say, putting modern in quotes, the modern human walks around with ideas in their head. We would even say ideas in our brains. But this localization of mind, you see, it's localized, it's in the skull, and the ideas are in my brain. That localization remains untenable on scientific grounds. And it does not fit with most of the spiritual philosophical traditions that we have inherited. Nature is already minded. And because of this, we need to mind nature. Not mine, nature, but mind nature. Attend to nature. And allow nature's mindedness to spontaneously presence itself in, through, and as our life and our world. And we likewise need to allow nature to mind us. That will mean liberating ourselves into the non-duality of nature and culture. We keep them separated. There's a current of thought, especially in the dominant culture, that the purpose of culture is to protect us from nature. But that cuts off our own intelligence. And that duality between nature and culture isn't sustainable, so we could liberate ourselves into the non-duality of nature and culture and thereby liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind. And that's where a greater intelligence and creativity can flow through us. We can't really let nature care for us, guide us, teach us, and even liberate us if we maintain a false duality between nature and culture. And one of the problems with human thought, speech, and action is that we have practiced them in ways that exclude the mindedness of nature and all her beings. And so we've become unable to properly participate in and enjoy the fullest benefits of the larger ecologies of mind that constitute our world. 
And those larger ecologies of mind can help us solve problems and heal our lives together. Now, it's a simple example. We already know, maybe you know this, or you've heard about it, that the vast majority of our medicines ultimately derive from the mindedness of nature. Scientifically speaking, evolution is a mental process, and by means of that mental process of evolution, nature has thought up antibiotics, anti-inflammatories, analgesics, antidepressants, and much more wide variety of them. But we in the dominant culture, generally speaking, don't yet properly engage with the mindedness of nature. It's very unskillful, our relationship with that mindedness. And so we miss so many things that nature has to teach us. And so often I say that Franz de Waal had a wonderful question. He asked that wonderful question, are we intelligent enough to understand how intelligent non-human beings are? And when we just reflect for a little bit on that question, we realize we have to say, no, we're not smart enough to know how smart they are. We don't really understand the mindedness and the intelligence, the creative intelligence all around us. And so, DeWall's question doesn't even have to get restricted to non-human beings, but in general, the intelligence and mindedness pervasive in nature, we are not yet intelligent enough to fully recognize that intelligence. It's almost a bit of a catch-22 that maybe we can't recognize it until we liberate ourselves more fully into it. And if things stay this way, it may bring about the collapse of organized human life as we known it, or as we have known it. And so we have to get beyond this ignorance, and only from beyond it can we say what our real potential is for creative intelligence, for wisdom, love, and beauty, for truly skillful thought, speech, and action. I would say actually thinking, speaking, and action, activity. And I often quote Gregory Bateson's excellent crystallization of the predicament of contemporary civilization. You may have heard me quote it before. It's worth repeating. It's a wonderful motto for thinking about our need to reorient ourselves. As Bateson put it, the major problems of the world are a result of the difference between the way nature works and the way human beings think. Now, he didn't mean all human beings. We're talking about primarily the ways conquest consciousness operates. And there are many forms of ignorance, of course, in the world, but conquest consciousness in particular matches this diagnosis that Bateson gave. So our problem in general is human ignorance, not liberalism, not conservatism, not capitalism, not socialism, those are not our problem. No ism and no human is our problem. Human beings are not the enemy. Ignorance is the problem that we face. When an ignorant mind does anything at all, it could be when an ignorant mind engages in capitalism, when an ignorant mind engages in socialism, when an ignorant mind engages in conservatism, whatever it is, 
when an ignorant mind engages in that, it will lead to negative consequences. This thought properly frames the essential challenge facing most any group or individual in terms of realizing breakthroughs, real breakthroughs, into genuinely creative and skillful patterns of thinking and activity. We have gotten saddled with insane notions of innovation and progress. In the dominant culture, innovation and progress at the end of the day mean more of the same. We keep elaborating the same pattern and the world we depend on keeps getting degraded in the process. That's what innovation and progress means. More degradation of our ecologies. More junk, more waste, more distraction, more little hits of dopamine to keep us going along with the process of making a small number of people very, very wealthy while the world itself becomes depleted. If we want to go beyond mere innovation or what's called thinking outside the box in the dominant culture, if we want to enter a new age, a new paradigm, something truly incredible and incredibly needed. Well, this will only come when we have attuned our thinking to the most creative thinking possible. And that is to say the thinking that created butterflies and lotus blossoms, the thinking that created the rainforest, and the still maturing species that must learn to live in harmony with the rainforest. The creative thinking that thought all those medicines into being, all these wonderful foods and flowers and songs, we must attune ourselves to the creative intelligence of nature. That's our proper intelligence at work. Gregory Bateson was a rigorous scientist and he specifically valued the arts as a way to help us learn to think the way nature works. Think the way nature thinks. Think the way nature functions. And thus unleash our fullest potential while healing the damage wrought by our ignorance. But the arts have to be properly informed by a skillful philosophy of life. They can't do it on their own or we would be out of the trouble by now. We need a little bit more to it, and Bateson somehow understood that, I think. Now, one way we can get at this, a different way of, of putting this, is that instead of trying to think outside the box, we need to think outside. Just outside. Outside the skull. And outside the built environment. Thinking is less in us then we are in it. So instead of thinking, as we sort of naively do, that we're walking around with ideas in our heads, we are walking around in the living, loving thinking of life. It's everywhere we look. Now this does not reduce to something that we could call metaphysical idealism, technical term, if you've never heard it, don't worry. It's not an ism. We're not talking about an ism, so we don't have to worry about it. And we don't want to latch on to this kind of thought in any dualistic way, as if the suggestion that mind or the mindedness of nature somehow stands in contrast with the body. From the viewpoint 
of the pattern of insanity. That is to say, for most people in the dominant culture, both mind and body remain conceptual abstractions. To liberate mind and body requires liberating all the minds and bodies of our world and allowing those minds and bodies to liberate each of us. But let's look at this idea. Instead of thinking outside the box, just start thinking outside. The cognitive neuroscientist David Strayer realized that some of his best ideas came to him after backpacking trips into the wild, into nature. Of three days or more, that's when he was out for at least three days, he noticed that he would get a lot of great ideas. Not at the research laboratory, surrounded by all the expensive equipment and all the other people with advanced degrees. There's all that great thinking there. Everybody has got a PhD, advanced training, working with high-tech equipment, cutting-edge theories, cutting-edge mathematics. Doesn't that sound like the right place for a great idea? But no, Strayer found out that his best ideas were coming to him in nature. And in an interview, this is what he said. I'm quoting David Strayer, the cognitive neuroscientist. He said, Having hiked around the desert for years, I noticed in myself, and from talking to others, that people think differently after being out in the desert. Their thoughts are clearer. They're certainly more relaxed. They report being more creative. If you can disconnect and experience being in the moment for two or three days, it seems to produce a difference in qualitative thinking. Now, Strayer is uh, talking about the desert as a specific example. This would not be restricted to the desert, and this, these are old, old ideas. Jesus went out into the desert for a reason. Buddha went into the forest for the same reason. It doesn't have to be the desert. It can be the wild forest. It can be the mountains where Milarepa hung, hung out. And it's significant that we're talking about two or three days. That's a very remarkable thing. That we're going around with this mind that we think we know. And we think, this is the mind that I'm going to use to solve problems. We might be a lawyer, we might be an engineer, we might be a cognitive neuroscientist. And here we are, working with other people, highly trained, highly educated, we all have high IQs, and we think we're in we're our right mind. And Strayer is suggesting, no, the mind that you use every day, and you think, this is my mind, this is the good mind that I'm going to bring to make me successful, to come up with a good idea, whatever it might be, this is the mind that I think is serviceable for that. Strayer's saying, yeah, but if you spent two or three days in the wilderness, you'd have a different mind, and you'd realize that that mind is far more skillful. And that's just two or three days. We're not even talking about a lot of training, which the spiritual traditions would say, look, yeah, you can go for two or three days and that is going to be better than the level of crazy you didn't even realize you were in before. But if you let us train you a little bit, oh, there's a whole other level, there's a whole other thing. It's an onion, man. You just peeled away one layer. And we could recall here Pierre Adot, great French I would say philosopher. He was a, he's a scholar, but also uh, not interested in 
mere intellectual and professorial activity, but philosophy is a way of life. And Pierrot recognized what he referred to as a rupture, a rupture with our habitual mind, that Sophia, goddess of wisdom, demands from the philosopher. It's a rupture every genuinely spiritual or philosophical life demands from us, that somehow or other we have to make a break with the mind we thought was our normal, workable, serviceable mind, a mind we thought was skillful enough to operate in the world and on the world. Entering the path of philosophy or love wisdom means a rupture with countless habits of daily life, a rupture with limited and limiting ways of life, ways of thought, speech, and action, for which love wisdom offers therapeia, that is, therapy for our soul. It's easy enough to go to therapy when you're suffering. The part of the point here is Treyer is saying, even when you think your mind might be doing a good job, you're out of your mind and you might not realize it. And we need to see how that rupture with habitual life can become accomplished as a reunion with nature, because that's what love wisdom is. It is a path of atonement and attunement with spiritual and ecological realities not seen as two different things. And we face here the possibility that what we refer to as civilized life, that civilized life as we know it stands in tension with nature. It keeps us out of attunement with spiritual and ecological realities. And thus, civilized life, what we refer to as civilized life, it goes together with a measurably degraded thinking, a measurably degraded mind. And that thinking, that mind might be degraded in ways that we just currently can't conceive. In the state we're in, we can't conceive it because we're, we're stuck in it. We'd have to get beyond it to say, wait a second, now that was crazy. So we're being limited by the thing that we think is so liberating. Civilization. I can get on a plane and go anywhere, but you're out of your mind. I can make money and buy whatever I want, but you're out of your mind. And that everything that we're doing, we're doing out of our mind. Out of attunement with spiritual and ecological reality. And Strayer is not being some pie-in-the-sky idealist, you know, this is not some hippie thing, this is a cognitive neuroscientist saying my best scientific ideas come when I'm out there. He's, he's talking about his life in the realm of publish or perish. So this is, you could say, highly pragmatic, practical, concrete, nitty-gritty. Now, he was just talking anecdotally in a way. Of course, he spoke to other people who spent time in nature. He found out, yeah, their, their experience is like mine, so it's not just one person. Even if it was one, it would be worth studying. And so the best way to validate that claim is through what we could call consummatory experience. You go out and practice, try it. But 
Of course, being in the dominant culture, and being a scientist in the dominant culture, Strayer decided to set up an experiment. And they published, he and his team, he collaborated with a couple other researchers, and they published their findings under the following title, Creativity in the Wild, Improving Creative Reasoning Through Immersion in Natural Settings. And the researchers found something relatively astonishing. Here's a quote from their paper. Four days of immersion in nature and the corresponding disconnection from multimedia and technology increases performance on a creativity problem-solving task by a full 50% in a group of naive hikers. Our results demonstrate that there is a cognitive advantage to be realized if we spend time immersed in a natural setting. We anticipate that this advantage comes from an increase in exposure to natural stimuli. I added that last part in there because it's kind of funny. And so he's saying naive hikers. People, these are not already wilderness fans. They, They got two groups together. One group just relaxed for four days. The other group went out into nature. And these were not experienced hikers, they were naive hikers. So this was not something where they would say, oh yes, I'm already biased, I already think that I think better out here. So they were trying to do a good job the way contemporary dominant culture science does in isolating the variable. And I think it's funny, exposure to natural stimuli, even he is not willing to see that It's mindedness, not stimuli as if it's objects. Well, there are some nice stimuli around here. I feel very stimulated. That's not it. Now, the researchers, as we said, they called this paper Creativity in the Wild, Improving Creative Reasoning Through Immersion in Natural Settings. If we really pause and let these findings sink in, we might suggest that they gave the wrong title, too. There's something maybe missing still. They might better have called it the creativity of the wild. I mean, it's nice, creativity in the wild, but you see what what we've done. We've gotten so captured. Oh, let's just stick the human being somewhere else. Put them in a different box, and they'll think better in that box. And we're saying, no, think outside. Why? Because there's thinking already outside. It's not creativity. I am creative in the wild. It is that the wild is creative And when I'm out there, after two or three days, I start to get in tune with it. And then that creativity starts flowing through me. And instead of the subtitle, Improving Creative Reasoning Through Immersion in Natural Settings, again, this organism-environment split, they could have called it Returning Intelligence to Its Proper Place. That is, that we recognize that there's intelligence all around us and that we return our mind to the place where it belongs. This is not to say that we all have to go live like cave people, you know, wander around outside all the time. It's just to say that something fundamental is out of whack with the way we live and the way we think. And how can we think ourselves through that problem? We can connect this study by Strayer and his colleagues with another one 
that we cited in a previous contemplation. It was by Long et al. It was in 2014. They found that, quote, students who were more connected with nature preferred innovative and holistic cognitive styles while controlling for their general emotional status and well-being. And the authors note that their findings, quote, are the first to establish the link between connectedness with nature and cognitive styles. That's just a beautiful sort of finding, that connectedness to nature may somehow relate to our being more innovative and holistic thinkers. And that these researchers are referring to a style of cognition, a style of thinking. We would take it another step, I think. Philosophically, we want to say it's a style of consciousness. We can miss the ways consciousness has a developmental aspect because consciousness, from our perspective, just seems like consciousness. As if consciousness reveals things as they are. And that's why you could be going to your regular job inside a built environment and think you just are conscious. Not that your consciousness has had a particular developmental path which limits you from perceiving some things and also allows you to be very sensitive to others. How consciousness reveals things depends on its development, how we think. It's not just about what we think. It's that we have a style of thinking. And we have a style of consciousness. We're not simply conscious, as if we are conscious of everything, just as it is. Development is part of consciousness. It has a developmental path. And development significantly confined to a built environment and further confined by unskillful and unrealistic philosophies of life, that yields a significantly limited consciousness. Our philosophies of life are either going to liberate or constrain the developmental path of our consciousness. And the philosophies of the dominant culture are pretty narrow. I mean, we didn't even realize how bad our thinking was when we stick ourselves in built environments. Because you just don't sense it. You're just thinking. You're sitting there with your colleagues and you're all smart and you're all thinking. So consciousness reveals things as if that's just how they are. It doesn't indicate that it reveals things as it has constructed them. It reveals what we have confected We're stuck in our own candy shop, confecting everything that we see. And this basic fact is supported not only by the findings we've mentioned, but countless other empirical findings of both the wisdom traditions and the science of the dominant culture. Now, there's another interesting finding that comes from Zelensky and that team in 2015 we've mentioned before as well. 
The researchers found that connecting with nature facilitates cooperative, pro-social, and environmentally sustainable behaviors. And this is precisely in contrast to behavior influenced by the built environment. Precisely in contrast. Another study worth mentioning is a meta-analysis, including over 2,400 individuals. This was work done by Schutt and Meloff in 2018, and they found a significant relationship between mindfulness and connectedness with nature. In other words, the built environment seems to go with a style of consciousness, a style of thought, that makes us less cooperative, less creative, less mindful, less ecologically sustainable. Now this connection between mindfulness in particular and nature makes a whole lot of sense if you know the Buddhist philosophical tradition because Buddha went into the forest, he went into the wilderness, and that was the gold standard of Buddhist knowledge. How do you know reality? Go off by yourself into the wilderness. And there's a clear recognition when you read Milarepa and Shabkar and you read Buddha and you read a lot, the Zen tradition picks this up and runs with it. You see the recognition of the mindedness all around. That every single thing is the wisdom that Buddha was trying to teach. It's an astonishingly beautiful philosophy. And Buddha clearly accomplished this attunement with spiritual and ecological reality. Now, it's not so easy because he's very clear that if you think you can just go into the woods for two or three days and you're going to come out with his quality of mind, that's just crazy. And so there is something important about having a holistic philosophy of life that can support what we're talking about here and it does not mean that we all have to give up our homes, our house, built house environment. The earth is our home, right? So bricks and boards don't make a home. They make a structure. And we're not saying that we have to leave all the built environment. We might want to change how we build. We could build far more in harmony. That's a whole other discussion. We're just trying to recognize something profound and important that we may be captured in a developmental path of consciousness that has so constrained that consciousness that it is willing to destroy the conditions of life that it depends on to survive. We imagine that if somebody's out of their mind, they just will talk nonsense, for instance, you know? That maybe they'll behave in such a crazy way. And so when we see people on TV, billionaires and politicians and CEOs, fossil fuel executives, they're not running around like we think they have to be institutionalized. But all we have to do is shift the frame. If you look at the frame the right way, if you look at the picture you see a bunch of beings trying to destroy the conditions of life they depend on. It's pretty crazy. 
And we have evidence here suggesting, well, there's a reason why. They're not in their right mind. And neither are we. That's partly why it doesn't look so strange to us. We all live in the same built environment, inundated by social media, inundated with busyness, underslept, eating stuff that shouldn't necessarily be called food, taking a whole bunch of different prescriptions, drinking polluted water, polluted air, hearing all kinds of crazy things on the news all the time, not sure if there's going to be a mass shooting the next time we go to a concert or to church or to work. We see that the built environment, to say it again, seems to go with a style of consciousness that makes us less cooperative, less creative, less mindful, less ecologically sustainable, less ecologically aware, and the style of consciousness arising from rootedness in nature seems more innovative, more creative, more holistic, more cooperative, more sustainable, more present and aware, more susceptible to the great mystery, more susceptible to divine influences, more susceptible to insight and inspiration, to healing, wholeness, holiness, more susceptible to wisdom, love, and beauty, rather than being susceptible to fear, craving, reactivity, stress, strain, trauma, anxiety, depression, loneliness. Now, we have to emphasize again and again the need for a shift in philosophy. I'm not saying simply go outside. Because the problems of spiritual materialism are going to go out there with you. And so we can go outside, and hedge fund managers everywhere, fossil fuel executives can go outside, and what they'll do is possibly a better job extracting from the earth. Forest therapy is a good uh, example of, of a more fragmented approach or nature therapy. There are lots of interventions or hacks that support or replicate the findings that David Strayer and his colleagues were able to document. And what a lot of this stuff can do is tame, domesticate, co-op, the thinking of nature and further tame and domesticate and co-opt our thinking into the pattern of insanity. And so this idea of forest therapy, we might hear the, the phrase forest therapy or forest bathing. And some authors suggest that we could accomplish this in a city park or on a short walk in relatively tame wooded areas. Now, in an absolute sense, that's true. But the spirit of this sort of therapeutic intervention is not the same as the therapeia of philosophy. Because philosophy demands that we see a deeper problem than the need to occasionally get away from it all. And it encourages a deeper 
more significant rupture than what we're going to get in most cases from forest bathing. Forest bathing might actually forestall that. And it does that in, in one way or another. And again, spiritual materialism is subtle. This is not to say that people advocating forest bathing are doing something malicious. They probably think they're doing something wonderful and they have very good intentions and they might have had wonderful experiences. But functionally speaking, in relationship to the larger pattern of insanity that is destroying forests, forest bathing can end up turning our forests, whatever we have left, into a psychic bathtub. That that's almost literally what we'll do. We'll go in there, bathe the psyche for a little bit, and then go back to work. And the pattern of insanity will continue then to destroy the forest until we've got nothing left with these little tame areas in our cities. And what that does is it limits the mutual empowerment of forests and human beings. There's a mutual empowerment. It does not have to be a relationship in which the only way human beings get ahead is by destroying the forest, because that's what we've got now. In the culture that we've confected, you can get power by destroying forests. That's not mutual empowerment, and it's not real power. It's fake power within a fake system. The mutual empowerment of humans and forests, that's real power. When Lao Tzu wrote Dao De Jing, the Dao and the Du, the Du is that mutual virtue and virtuosity. That's real power. That book is about the Dao, the great mystery, and its power. And the power he was talking about is definitely not the power you get when you destroy a forest and make a bunch of money and become rich and powerful. And only when our relationship with the forest recognizes that will we have something that can help. And a lot of forest therapy is not going to even bring that up. At the end of the day, a lot of forest therapy and forest bathing is about feeling better. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to get rid of our suffering. But if we really want liberation from our suffering, we have to get rid of the causes of the suffering. Therapy treats symptoms. Therapeia calls for rebirth, rejuvenation, a reorientation and reorganization of our experience. If extended exposure to nature gives such startling gains in creative intelligence along with other benefits, now we should pause and reflect on the whole organization of society and not try to take better advantage of its current forms of organization by seeking out nearby parks. You see... When you, read, when you read a study like that, is the first impulse, well, I'm going to go spend more time with the trees, or is it, wait a second, with all those benefits, we need to do everything differently. I mean, I shouldn't be running out to the nearest park so I can feel a little bit better. We should be asking, wait, we are all out of our minds then, right? And we have to reorganize the way we're living. What ongoing clarity, coherence, and creativity 
What ongoing intelligence and wisdom does our current context cut us off from? That's the question. Now, if these findings were new, we might hesitate. But again, these are old things. And we can recall here again that Thoreau went into nature as best as he could. And there on Walden Pond, that's when he wrote that accusation. There are nowadays professors of philosophy, but no philosophers. And that sort of suggestion is implicit in a lot of philosophical and spiritual traditions, even in the dominant culture. Emerson, in his essay, Nature, he wrote, quote, In the woods we return to reason and faith. There I feel that nothing can befall me in life, no disgrace, no calamity, leaving me my eyes, which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed in the blithe air and lifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. That's what Emerson wrote. He here associates nature with whatever good thing we would want from what we call reason and what we call faith, or even emotion. Now, these are problematic terms, of course. Reason has almost become a disease. And I say that fully recognizing that we need more reasoning, we need more critical thinking. We want the positive benefits from the delusion that we've been calling reason. And we find those benefits in our rootedness. Our rootedness in the sacred. Which we practice and realize well. Which we discover and create well when we're in the forests, mountains, oceans, deserts when we are with all sentient beings and all of sentient being. And both Emerson and dominant culture science get at the essence of what we're seeking here. Ultimately, the transcendence of the ego. That's actually what we wanted from reason, isn't it? When you think about it, why do we reason with each, with each other is because it's to say to the other person, look, set your ego aside this is rational. Get over yourself. That's what reason says to us. That's what we want it for. It is about transcending the ego. It's the same gesture as love, ultimately. It's about attuning ourselves to something that's bigger than ourselves. That's what reasoning is supposed to do. The truth is bigger than you are. So reason is not about arguing and winning. It is about transcending the ego to become attuned with reality. The dominant culture, though, got lost. Maybe it got hooked in the fallacy of intellectualism and the dualities of path and goal, the dualities of organism and environment and all the rest. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Why would Emerson speak of a return to reason and faith? Isn't that so interesting? 
And we could suggest it's because of the way a proper attunement with nature accomplishes a single gesture of rupture and reunion. We, we made that suggestion early on, that philosophy, love, wisdom, says you've got to make a break with your crazy way of being. You don't even realize how out of your mind you are, says the sage to us. Make a break with that way of life. Just let it go. And so we make, we make that rupture. It's an activity of renunciation. But then what are we seeking? We're, is it just breaking? No. We're seeking reunion. And when we go out in nature with the right mind, that is a mind of love, a mind of peace, a mind of compassion, a mind of stability and clarity, when we take that trained mind into nature, we have made that rupture and we have made the reunion in the same gesture. Now, there's an Australian professor of philosophy, Glenn Albrecht. He writes about something called a psychoterratic feedback. That's the part of the reason why I called this contemplation the feedback loop of earth and soul. Now, here's how he put it. I'm going to read you a quote from Albrecht. He, he wrote, quote, We used to get positive psychoterratic feedback between earth and ourselves as a natural part of being alive and human. But now, if you go to the beach or try to breathe in the clean air in Oregon, you're going to have plastic, rubbish, and smoke from wildfires all around you. It alienates us from our natural connections in a world that is polluted. So there's a feedback loop. When it's working well, we're more creative, more cooperative, more innovative, more holistic in our thinking. Psychoterratic. He was trying to get at psyche, which is soul, mind, and terra, which is earth. So it's a loop, a mutuality, a mutual liberation of psyche and Gaia psyche and cosmos, self and world. We cannot know from inside our current ways of knowing, you see, because we have ways of knowing. If somebody said, I've got a question, how should I find out the answer? You'd say, Google it. You wouldn't say, well, the way to come to know things is to go out into nature for a few days. Do you have a meditation practice to stabilize your mind, first of all? Okay, that's good, because that'll help you know. And then you can get in touch with that mind and then you can go out into nature and let nature help you find out. I mean, that's really what the wisdom traditions, and especially what Buddha embodies archetypally. He is saying, in nature, with this mind of love, with this mind of compassion, with this mind of peace, that's how you come to know things. So we have a way of knowing things and a whole set of ways of knowing things. And from within that, what we're caught in in the dominant culture, we cannot know how we could know if we could keep that 
earth and soul feedback loop healthy, vital, whole, and holy, to see it as sacred, a loop that unifies mind and nature in ways that activate our creative intelligence and fuller capacities in ways we currently can't access or only can access in degraded fashion. I mean, some of it, some of our potential is just not on the table. It's not available. And you can spend all the time in nature you want. It still won't be there. But you might get more. You see, that's what I'm saying this study suggests. You spend some time in nature. If you think outside, you're already getting more. If you have a holistic philosophy of life, okay, now that amplifies it even further. And it seems that human beings hunger for this feedback loop and for the kind of mind, the kind of consciousness that emerges in a context more rooted in nature. And I'll say it again, I'm I'm not suggesting we all have to live like, you know, outdoors. But we can't live in disconnection anymore. Now we can consider an example. I mean, indigenous people understood this, especially in interaction on, on Turtle Island, the interaction between the dominant culture, the conquest consciousness that invaded here, and the indigenous people. There's a an indigenous man named Humley of the Walla Walla Nation. And in 1870, he was recorded as saying about his ancestors, when they hunted for happiness, they searched the ground first. <laughs> now, is that our instinct? Is that the way we look for happiness or insight? And though I don't think, again, that we need to just all live outdoors, we can consider the example of Miriam Lancewood. Maybe you've heard of her because she's got a couple of books out. Now, she spent seven years living in the wild in New Zealand with her partner. And when I say they were living in the wild, they had a very light, movable shelter, like basically a kind of tent. And they had to hunt and gather all their food. They had to make campfire for heat. No cell phone, no internet, no technology. Now, I think they did later, I think their their hunting was with a gun and a bow and arrow, so there's some technology there, but what I mean is no high tech. Now, she did occasionally hike to the nearest road, say they might be out in the middle of nowhere, and then she would hike until she found a road, and then she'd hitchhike into the nearest town from that road, and she had a guitar, and she would take the guitar with her. She'd play on the street for a few hours, and then she'd use that money to get a few fruits and vegetables if there was you know, they were in a season where those things were hard to get. Now, you can see part of the reason you might not be able to live just out and live off the land is that we so degraded the land that you might not be able to get enough food, and there's no need to get scurvy to prove a point, right? Then she wasn't doing this to prove a point. She was doing it because she wanted to live this way. 
Now, Miriam originally lived in Holland, and she was a school teacher by profession. And then what happened was she met a man who shared her passion for leaving civilization and living in the wild. And that's how they headed off. Now, they, there was an interview that she did on New Zealand television. I think this was before her books came out. I think maybe, I don't even know if her books were in process. But she read from a letter to her sister. And I like the, in part because her sister's name is Sophie. So there's Sophia, goddess wisdom appearing in the form of this woman's sister. And here's what she wrote. Dearest Sophie, can you imagine a way of life so quiet, so timeless, so abundant and full, that watching a single leaf fluttering from a tree, lifted into the air by a little breeze, turning silver in the sunshine, is meaningful? William Blake would love that, wouldn't he? You know, infinity in the palm of your hand. The interviewer asked Miriam, well, what do you think of the way we live our lives? And she replied, I don't really know how you can stand it. How can you deal with sleep deprivation? And you have all these things, so much pressure. How do you deal with that without becoming so dull? How can you keep clarity? How can you keep vital? How do you deal with a monotone existence running around the clock? How do you deal with it? So there you have it. I don't think that Miriam is the Buddha. I don't think she's a sage. It, it, it's, it goes toward these different levels. Just making the rupture leads you to turn back and look at the mind of the people caught in the pattern of insanity, to look at that mind and say, that is really out of whack. I mean, look at the words she's, she's using. Your mind is dull. You don't have clarity. You're not vital. You're living a monotone existence. Now, the sages, especially as civilization continued to develop, they would say, well, you can have that mind of clarity in the city. But most of them will admit it's not as easy. But if you have to live in the city, you can practice that mind of clarity, that mind of vitality. You can make a rupture with monotone existence, and then you'll be all the more ready when you have these opportunities to go into the wild. But just imagine, for anybody who's trying to think, well, how can I best navigate my life? Well... Would clarity help? We might think we're clear. And, you know, you have a couple cappuccinos or espressos or bowls of matcha or whatever your favorite thing is, and you feel, man, I'm clear. But we don't have a relevant contrast. We don't have the comparison. Maybe we've never spent three or four days in the wild, or maybe we've never spent three or four days in a meditation retreat, or maybe we've never tried to meditate for five hours a day. And so we don't know what that mind is. And to us, a cup of coffee is the height of clarity. Maybe it's four cups, maybe it's whatever, a couple of cans of power drink, whatever your favorite poison is. But we might think that that's clarity.
Now, a very simple internet search will turn up a whole literature on what's called state-dependent learning. And that has some bearing on what we're talking about, but I think we're talking about something much bigger than that. I'm just suggesting one place where you can find this in some of the dominant culture science. We're talking about a way of life, a style of consciousness. I mean, that's as intimate as it gets. That's everything that you see is confected on the basis of a developmental trajectory that divides nature and culture. I think it's interesting to hear these sorts of words from a seemingly ordinary person, a school teacher, born and raised in Holland, born and raised in a pretty urban environment. And she's saying there's such a contrast. It's not necessarily easy for us to get in touch with that. Carl Jung suggested that we might get in touch with this earth and soul feedback loop, at least in a modest way, if we wanted to make a, make a start. Try to work our way back to nature. He suggested that a garden would help. That's a simple thing, isn't it? Doesn't that seem, really, that's it? And we should bracket his comments, I think, with the awareness uh, that his approach is old school. He's, he's not a, much of a farmer himself. And he's from the dominant culture, so he thinks we have to till the earth. And that's arguably part of conquest consciousness, that invasive agriculture has to go plowing up the earth. And we know that that's not necessary. You can do very, very well without doing that. Same thing with the notion of owning land. That's quite connected with conquest consciousness. And Jung talks a little bit about that. But that's okay. Let's just read this together. I'm going to read a passage as an imperative to be truly connected with the land. That that's what he's saying. And he only uses the phrases he uses given the context of the dominant culture. And let's accept that in general his suggestions might be overly optimistic in some ways. And we may need more of a change in our relationship to the land and each other than the dominant culture can handle without becoming something quite different from what it is. So Jung might not realize how much more spiritual practice we need and he might not realize what a big cultural shift we need. And let's savor the deliciousness of a psychologist, a really expert therapist of the soul, diagnosing the effect of capitalism on the soul. Now, Jung was no communist, but he certainly registered the ill effects of capitalism on our psyche. Okay, so now here's the passage. This is a couple of paragraphs, and I'll let you know when we come to the end. Here's Carl Jung. Every person should have their own plot of land, so that the instincts can come to life again. To own land is important psychologically, and there is no substitute for it. We keep forgetting that we are primates, and that we have to make allowances for these primitive layers in our psyche. The farmer is still closer to these layers. 
In tilling the earth he moves around within a very narrow radius, but he moves on his own land. The industrial worker is a pathetic, rootless being, and his remuneration in money is not tangible but abstract. In earlier times, when the crafts flourished, he would have derived satisfaction from seeing the fruit of his labor. He found adequate self-expression in such work. But this is no longer the case. First of all, he is responsible for only a small part of the finished product. Secondly, the product is sold, it disappears, and he has no further stake in it. Because the psychological reward is inadequate, the worker rebels against his employer and against capitalism as a whole. We all need nourishment for our psyche. It is impossible to find such nourishment in urban tenements without a patch of green or a blossoming tree. We need a relationship with nature. I derive a great deal of pleasure from growing my own potatoes. People tend to look for the kingdom of God in the outer world rather than in their own souls. Individuation is not only an upward but also a downward process. Without any body, there is no mind and therefore no individuation. Our civilizing potential has led us down the wrong path. All too often, an American worker who owns only one car, considers himself a poor devil because his boss has two or three cars. This is symptomatic of pointless striving for material possessions. Yet we need to project ourselves into the things around us. Myself is not confined to my body it extends into all the things I have made and all the things around me. Without these things, I would not be myself. I would not be a human being. Everything surrounding me is part of me, and that is precisely why a rented apartment is disastrous. A community is based on personal relationships. No community can evolve where people can easily move households from one place to another. The one family house, the house owned by its inhabitants, is much better because it necessarily engenders a sense of permanence. When capitalism takes everything out of the hands of the worker, he feels he has been robbed, Therefore, our economic system must put something else within his grasp. In particular, the worker must be enabled to have a personal leisure time occupation, and this, again, is best suited to the private dwelling, the family, the garden. Life in a small city is better than life in a large one, politically, socially, and in terms of community relations. Big cities are responsible for our uprootedness. The Swiss are mentally more balanced and not so neurotic as many peoples. We are fortunate to live in a great number of small cities. 
if I do not have what my psyche needs, I become dangerous. A captive animal cannot return to freedom, but our workers can return. We see them doing it in the allotment gardens in and around our cities. These gardens are an expression of love for nature and for one's own plot of land. As our working hours become shorter, the question of leisure time becomes increasingly essential to us, time in which we are free of commands and restraints and in which we can achieve self-realization. I am fully committed to the idea that human existence should be rooted in the earth. That's the end. And this is from an interview, actually. I don't know if I said that. And it's a, I think the best thing he says is at the end, our existence is rooted in the earth. And it's interesting to note here that Jung, like countless other intellectuals of his time, they expected working hours to get shorter. And our working hours haven't gotten shorter. And I really think we better wonder how much that has to do with the fact that many of us might have used our leisure time to be more connected to nature. Because more connected to nature might make us feel more complete and less interested in the two or three cars that we have to buy to keep up with the next person. It reduces our materialism and our materialistic orientation. Now Jung offers a lot of helpful suggestions here. It's also maybe worthwhile to see some of these suggestions as symptoms of conquest consciousness, and we already mentioned that a little bit. Why do we have to till the earth? Why shouldn't that seem foolish? Because we got used to it? The no-till agricultural revolution is doing a lot of good. So are the movements of permaculture and rewilding. The indigenous peoples of Turtle Island seem to have found the white man's predilection for tilling the soil an aberration. One of the more extreme responses comes from Smohala of the Wanapum Nation. He said, You ask me to plow the ground. Shall I take a knife and tear my mother's bosom? Then when I die, she will not take me into her bosom to rest. You ask me to dig for stone. Shall I dig under her skin for her bones? And then when I die, I cannot enter her body to be born again. Indigenous peoples are not against agriculture per se, but they do invite us to see how invasive agriculture goes altogether with a certain mindset, a certain developmental pathway of consciousness. Conquest consciousness gives rise to conquest agriculture and to conquest culture in general. And a principal attribute of conquest culture is its disconnection from spiritual and ecological realities. Now we've tried to open up to the ways in which mind itself is ecological. So we think of ecology 
as a study of some aspect of nature. Oh, that person's an ecologist. But the way we're using ecological mind is ecological. It would be as if instead of saying that person's an ecologist, we would say that person is a psychologist. We ourselves are nature, and so is our mind. Our mind is nature, and nature is our mind. Mind is ecological, which means it's relational and transdermal. It, it's not trapped inside a bag of skin. Mind is not something that appears inside of ecologies. Rather, mind is ecological and evolution is a mental process, not a physical process that accidentally created minds that float around in an otherwise dead and stupid earth. Now, in relation to all of this, especially having just touched on farming, it might benefit us to consider the words of an actual farmer. And I'd really like to do that, but we've done a lot of good thinking so far, and I think it's best if we take a break. In what we should consider part two of this contemplation, actually it relates to a lot of other contemplations, but at the very least, let's say these are two parts of a single path of thought, single walk in the woods. In the second part, we'll consider the wise and wonderful words of the poet-farmer Wendell Berry. And I think you'll enjoy his beautiful reflections in the ways they illuminate and elaborate what we have considered so far. If you have any questions or reflections or stories to share about the magical and sacred interwovenness of soul and soil, of cosmos and psyche, please do send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation, but I'll enjoy reading them all the same. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.